Bibles to Ezra chapter 7. Ezra chapter 7. We're going to look at verses 1 through 10 tonight. And it starts, we want to start off looking at the good hand of God. The good hand of God or the providence of God. Both the same. If we could ask Ezra what was the secret of his successful life, he would have humbly said, because the good hand of the Lord was upon me. And it's a phrase that we find six times in chapters 7 and 8. Nothing but the blessing of God can explain how a little-known Jewish priest and scholar who was born in Babylonian captivity could do so much for God. And Israel, when there was so much working against him. That God's good hand was upon this man. The fact that God's good hand was upon this man doesn't take away from the importance of his personal godliness. Or his great ability as a scholar. And nor does it ignore the great help that King Artaxerxes gave him. It's all a part of God's good hand upon him. It's all a part of God's providence. God uses all kinds of people and all kinds of different circumstances to carry out his will. But if God's hand isn't at work in us and through us, nothing will get done. And it's the principle that Jesus taught his disciples in John 15, 5, when he said, without me, you can do nothing. Now, in John 15, he used the vine as an example All right. When you see a healthy vine, its branches run everywhere. Its leaves are beautiful. Its fruit is colorful and it's abundant. And even the most tiny branch, the, 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 the most distant tiny branch that's far away from the other branches, it may be looking for a little place to cling to. It's still vitally connected with the main stem that provides its strength, that provides its life. That massive vine, from the greatest branches to the smallest, is a living whole. One branch doesn't try to rule or direct another branch. And each branch runs back to the source. The branches are independent, yet they're dependent. Each branch adds its part to the beauty of the whole vine. And each branch is busy producing its own Greenery, its own flowers, and its own fruit. And that's the way the Christian life is. Whether it's expressed individually in the life of each believer or corporately in local churches. Their branches reaching out with the life of Christ to the far corners of the world. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. Jesus is reinforcing the lesson. There's no such thing as a freelance Christian. That is, I'm on my own. I do my own thing. You know, the Lone Ranger type attitude. To be a Christian in the biblical sense of the word, to be a biblical Christian, it involves an organic, if you will, spiritual relationship with Jesus Christ. In the Bible, there's no such thing as a denominational church being ruled from some headquarters. Or an independent church, ignoring all other gatherings of believers. We are all united to Christ. 
and through him to one another. Even though there's many branches, we're one whole. Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is the vine. You cut him off. You cut us off from him. Guess what? There will be no life at all, individually or corporately. And what passes for life is an inferior imitation, lifeless and sowing death. So what did God do for the people of Israel during those difficult days after the Babylonian captivity? Well, first of all, he directed a pagan ruler. Secondly, he gathered a willing remnant together to rebuild God's house. And third, he gave them a safe journey. You see, it's not what I do for God that's important. It's my personal commitment to live for him. Whatever we do in this life for God are just examples of what God can do through somebody's life who makes themselves available to him. You know, God is not looking for ability. He's looking for availability. You know, there's a lot of people who have ability, but they don't want to do anything. You know, it's like being the best worker at work, but he's absent half of the time. Doesn't do the company much good. God's looking for availability because you know what? God will work through you. God will give you the means. God just says, hey, I need a body. <laughs> I just need somebody who will, who will surrender to me and allow me to work through them. That's what God is looking for again. Ability. Oh, I'm sorry, availability, not ability. There are a lot of people, like I said, with great talents, but they don't want to offer them to God. Remember Moses in Exodus chapter 4, verses 10 through 16, when God called Moses to deliver the children of Israel. Moses started backpedaling. The Moses, said, Moses said to the Lord, Oh my Lord, I'm not eloquent. Neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant. He says, before you spoke to me and now, I'm not eloquent. I, I have a problem of speaking. I'm slow of speech. And he said, and slow of tongue. So the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes the mute, the deaf, the seen, or the blind? He said, have not I the Lord? He says, now therefore you go and I will be with your mouth. And I will teach you what you shall say. But then Moses said, oh my Lord, please send by the hand of whomever else you may send. Lord, please send somebody else. He was making all of these excuses why he couldn't go when God chose him to be the deliverer of Israel. So it says the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And here's why. You know, we are to seek God's will. We are to seek what God's will is for us. But once we know, then we're to go. And that's why it said that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And, and God said to Moses, is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well. And look, he is also coming out to meet you. It says, when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Now you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth, Moses, and I will be with his mouth. And I will teach you what you shall do. So he shall be your spokesman to the people. And he himself shall be as a mouth for you, and you shall be to him as God. And you shall take this rod in your hand with which you shall do the, do the signs. So God says, Moses, 
who made your man? I will speak with to you. I will teach him. You know what? If you don't want to go, then I'll, I'll get your brother and, and you can speak to him. The words I give you and he can speak to the people. God did just said, I will do it all, Moses. The lesson is simple. God knows us better than we know ourselves. So we must trust him, obey in him, obey him what he tells us to do. You see, when we, guess what? When you tell God you're weak, well, Lord, you know, I'm not really good at public speaking. I'm not really good at doing this. You're not telling God anything he doesn't know. He chose you and me anyway. In spite of all that we can't do, in spite of all the excuses, he says, I know what I can do through you if you'll just surrender to me. That's what it's all about. Surrendering to God, trusting in him to do the work through you. He already knows our weaknesses. Warren Wiersbe said, the will of God will never leave you or the power of God can't enable you. You see, with the call comes the enablement. It's like a parent asking their child to do something. Rarely will we ask a child to do something that they can't do. And if we do, guess what? We're going to come along and say, look, I'll help you. I'll show you how to do it. God does the same thing. The most effective leaders that we see in the Bible didn't know a lot about how much their lives impacted the lives of other people because, you see, they were too busy obeying God to keep track of their successes. Ezra, Ezra is one of those leaders. About 80 years after rebuilding the temple under Zerubbabel, Ezra went back to Judah with almost 2,000 men and their families. Then he was given a letter from Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, instructing him to carry out a program of teaching the people about God. Along with the letter came a good amount of power. But way before Ezra's mission started, God had shaped Ezra in three important ways so that he would use the power in a good way. First, he shaped Ezra as a scribe. Ezra dedicated himself to carefully studying God's word. Secondly, Ezra intended to apply and personally obey the commands that he learned from God's word. And third, Ezra was committed to teaching other people God's word and how it applied to life. So knowing what Ezra's priorities were, it's no surprise to see what he accomplished when he got to Jerusalem. And this applies to any one of us this evening that makes these three things their priority. Studying God's word, intending to apply it and personally obey the word of God that we learn in the scriptures, and then committing to teaching it to other people and how to apply it to life. Now, the people here had, obey, had disobeyed God's command not to marry women of foreign countries. That is, out of the family of God. Ezra spoke to the people, and he made it clear that they had sinned. And because many of them sinned, all of them were under God's condemnation. Confession, repentance, and action. Doing something about the sin were needed to make things right with God. So the people confessed their sin. And they came up with a plan to deal with the problem. So this initial effort by Ezra set the stage for what Nehemiah would do later on. So Ezra continued his ministry 
under Nehemiah, and they were both used by God to start a spiritual movement that moved the nation after Jerusalem was rebuilt. Now, Ezra did great things. And Ezra made a huge impact because, you see, he had the right starting place for the things that he did in his life. That was God's word. That was his starting place. If you want to know where to start, if you want to learn the the revelation of God, you want to learn things that, that you need, start it in God's word. You want to know the purpose for your life? Read God's word. Ezra studied God's word seriously. And Ezra applied it faithfully. And he taught it others. He taught it to others. He taught others what he learned. So he made a great model for anyone who wants to live and do great things for God. Follow Ezra's example. So then Ezra returned to the land with a second group of of exiles 80 years after Zerubbabel. Ezra found the temple rebuilt, but the lives of the people were messed up. And there are a lot of people today with messed up lives. But they would think they're doing okay. You know, they're hooked on drugs or whatever else things are, you know, and and they're, 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 they're lost. They have no idea where they're going, what they're doing. And you think, hey, everything is cool. I'm, I'm, I'm fine. I don't need God. When their lives are totally messed up. Christians today must also strive to keep their lives pure. Marian foreigners in, 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 in Ezra's day, those people who were opposed to God threatened the spiritual hope of the nation. So Ezra prayed for guidance, and then he did something about it. And you know what? Again, as Christians, we have to do the same thing. We have to work hard at keeping our lives pure and holy, and we have to refuse to let this world, the attraction of this world, compromise our lifestyle. So let's begin now with verses 1 through 10. Ezra chapter 7. And it begins, Now after these things, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, the son of Hittub, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Merioth, the son of Zerahiah, the son of Uzi, the son of Buki, the son of uh, Abishua, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra, wanted to make sure who this Ezra was by going through the genealogy. This Ezra came up from Babylon and he was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. Had given. The king granted him all his requests according to the hand of the Lord. Notice the hand of the Lord, his God, upon him. Some of the children of Israel, the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the Nethanim came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. On the first day of the first month, he began his journey from Babylon. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem according to the good hand of his God upon him. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. 
So verse 1 begins after these things. After what things? Well, after the things that ended in the dedication of the temple that resulted in the ordering of the service of God. In the reign of Artaxerxes, who was the king of Persia, after nearly 60 years, of which during that time the house of the Lord had fallen into such bad shape that it needed beautifying. And the moral condition of the people of the restoration had become lawless and they needed correction. So with these things in mind and with the idea of leading another group of Israelites back to Judah, Ezra received a commission from the king in chapters 7 through 10 here. And that is where we have now the ministry of Ezra. We have his journey from Babylon to Jerusalem. We have his ancestry and we have his friends. So in our story here, Ezra proves himself as the leader of this exodus. And he confirms his personal qualification. First of all, he tells them in verse 1 that he's the son of Sariah. Sariah was the high priest that was killed by King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Ezra was not his immediate son. Because even if he was, he was thought to have been born the year of Sariah's death, that would make him about 122 years old. The immediate son of Zariah who went into captivity was Jehozadak, 1 Chronicles 6, 14 through 15. Ezra was probably the grandson of, of great, uh, of the great, I'm sorry, he was probably the grandson or great grandson of Jehozadak and the nephew or grandnephew to Jeshua, the high priest who accompanied Zerubbabel. So by calling himself the son of Sariah, he seems to have claimed now to be in some way his representative. And Jeshua was probably dead. Secondly, ancestry has, or your lineage sometimes has, you know, has good social advantages, you know, depending on the, on the lineage of your family. Because here, only the sons of Aaron could be priests. So you see, it was a big advantage to be a descendant of Abraham because the temporal, the temporal, temporal blessings of the covenant were only limited to Abraham's children, a symbol of their relation to the spiritual, but limited again to the children of his faith. Children of godly ancestor are usually but not always those who keep the church going, both in its membership and its ministry. Isaiah 65, 23, it says, They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth children for trouble, for they shall be the descendants of the blessed of the Lord and their offspring with them. Secondly, Ezra confirms his moral qualifications. He was a skilled scribe, verse 6 says, in the law of Moses. Now, this law of Moses is recognized to be the law of God, the God of Israel, that he had given on Mount Sinai. The seriousness of Mount Sinai and the miracles of the first exodus is what's thought of here when it speaks of the law of Moses. Now, this is a wonderful statement and confirmation that God favors no other system of religion. The world says, hey, you know what? You can get to heaven in all kinds of ways. No, you can't. There is no other religious system by which you can get to heaven. Not the law of Buddhism, not the law of Hinduism, not the law of Confucianism, nor Mohammedism. The law of Moses is the law of the one and only true living God. You look at all these other guys, Buddha, Hin, you know, Hinduism, 
Confucius, Mohammed, they're still in their grave. Jesus is the only one who ever resurrected from the dead. He's the only one that qualifies for being a savior because he's now sitting at the right hand of the Father. That's why God's word is to be studied, not these other religions. They can't help you. They can't save you. They can't do anything for you. Their leaders are dead. They're buried still in the tomb. The Bible's author is God, the living God. The subject of the Bible is truth, the most absolute truth, infallible truth, only truth. Its spirit is holiness, and its end is heaven, eternity. Ezra was a skilled scribe, and being a skilled scribe of such a law gives him the highest qualifications to be a leader of men. He wasn't just a skillful writer, but he was a capable teacher as well. And then he confirms his political qualification. He had the king's support. The king gave him everything that he asked for, according to verse 6. So this was a great advantage because of this. There, you know, it helped to influence the Jews to gather together for this work because the people said, hey, you know what? Hey, let, let's, let's help Ezra because you know what? The king's supporting him. The king's with him in this project. So we don't have to be worried about being hassled by the king. So it influenced them to help and also it influenced the heathen, the unbelievers to help them. And how did it all happen? He said, according to the good hand of the Lord, his God who was upon him. We see that in verse 6 and 9 and verse 28, chapter 8, 18, 22 and 31. Like I said, six times we read that phrase, the good hand of the Lord, his God was upon him, recognizing that what he did was because of his God. By God's blessing, Ezra had wisdom to influence the king. That blessing also prepared the king to listen to what he had to say. And notice, God, God is in everything good. And we need to recognize this. And again, Ezra credits the success of what he did to the good hand of the Lord. He gives God that credit for assembling the people, for getting the people together. He had some of the children of Israel, according to verse 7. And it says they came as volunteers. Nobody, forced was, nobody was forced to go. There were 1,773 adult males, according to chapter 8, verse 1 through 20. With women and children, there were about 9,000 people. And among these people were people of influence. Verse 13 says there were priests, there were Levites. Some of them were from the families of the singers and gatekeepers, according to verse 7. There were also Nethanims, verse 7 says, who were descendants of those that David and the leaders had appointed for the service of the Levites, according to chapter 8, verse 20. The word Nethanim means given. Nethanim is probably another name for the Gibeonites who were assigned by Joshua to, to be uh, slaves forever. That is, woodcutters and water carriers for the house of God, Joshua uh, 9.23. And as water carriers, it makes sense that they, were, that they lived at the water gate. And giving specific jobs only to families helped to make things more efficient. The service of God should be the most efficient in every... You know, when, wherever we serve, it doesn't matter whether it's 
we want to call it high profile or, or, you know, obscure. We need to do the best and be most efficient in every area of service to God. He deserves our best. Then in the journey, his journey, not a lot of details are given about the journey. The time was about four months, according to verse 9. And it seems to have been, at least for the able-bodied, a march. It had to be a march. Because think about it. Where could you buy carriages that that would carry 9,000 people? And among the basics, they were provided with, among the basics they were provided with, they had tents for their camps. Chapter 8, 15 tells us that. And during their journey, during their pilgrimage, their hearts would be in Jerusalem. You know what? And that's the way it is also for the Christian. We are pilgrims on this earth. This is not our home. We're just passing through. And even though we don't have a lot of detail about the the, the journey here, the success of the mission is mostly circumstantial. They came up, notice, they came up from Babylon to Jerusalem. And it's way better to go up from the unspiritual Babylon, which is a type of the world, to the spiritual Jerusalem than to go the other way, going down like a lot of people do. Ezra didn't just have the skill to plan this exodus, but he also had the energy to carry out. And you know what? These two need to go together. A lot of people have a lot of good thoughts. But those thoughts die. Why? Because there's no decision made to carry them out. So many times throughout the years of ministry, I've heard, hey, you know what? Why don't we do this? This would be a great ministry. You want to lead that? Oh, what? no, I, you know, I, you know, I can't do it. I can't do it. And people wonder, why, why this? Why, why we don't have this? Why can't? You know, there's, there's, only, a, there's only Pastor Antonia, and, and there, we cannot do everything. We do what we need to do. But God has given you you know, talents, and he's given you ideas. But you also need to have, have, have the, make the effort and, and have the energy to carry them out so that those th- good thoughts don't die out. They're, those good thoughts and ideas, they're not of much value if you don't have the motivation to put them into action. Now, Ezra was wonderfully blessed in his desire and his effort to restore Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And it seems that the power and the blessing that served Ezra so clearly was was all from the king. But it was really all from Ezra's God. Never forget that. Whose will influenced the king's heart and whose providence guided every step and whose power and spirit gave efficiency and success to every plan and effort. And that's the way it is in all human planning and effort. The success that we have, hey, is just the sign that God's good hand is upon us. If I go out and I try to build the kingdom of God, but I don't seek him first, I don't seek his gracious approval, I don't seek his guidance, I don't seek his intervention, I don't seek the help of the Holy Spirit, my best efforts will come to nothing or it will turn to a disaster. That's why a lot of people's lives are a disaster. They don't seek God. 
They try to build their own kingdom. They don't seek God's approval for what they do. They don't seek his intervention. They don't want him in in their life. They don't seek the help of the Holy Spirit. And that's why people say, you know, my life is a mess. I I don't understand why everything just crumbles and and turns to dust. You know, if we plan a revival and we choose the instruments, let's say, hey, oh, hey, man, you know what? I want to have a revival. I want to just, you know, just have a revival for our church. And I choose somebody that I think, oh, they're a great evangelist. And you know what? I'm going to call them up and I'm going to see if they can come and speak. And if we choose the method and we try to convert the sinners, guess what? We will be sadly disappointed if we don't first pray and prepare our hearts and have the Lord on our side and take hold of his outstretched hand. On the other hand, it's easy to do the work. And the results are wonderful. And all human instruments so willingly fall in line and help us when the hand of God is on us. The application and the lesson here is pretty clear. First of all, prayer is the foundation of all wise planning and all successful effort in moving Christ's kingdom forward in the world. Secondly, God's hand has to be upon us if we we have to seek his providence on, on our behalf. There has to be cooperation between God and man. Third, there's the mystery of decadence of abundant evil, of the lack of converting power in the church, of the lack of revivals, that's found in the fact that God's hand is not upon us. Why? Because of the lack of faith and prayer. Now, in the blessing of God, verse 10 says, Ezra sought the law of the Lord. There is no study more profitable or any higher or more pleasing than studying God's word, the Bible. Ezra wanted, and, Ezra wanted to know the word of God wholeheartedly, and he pursued it wholeheartedly. It says that Ezra prepared his heart. That means he resisted impure thoughts and influences by seeking God in prayer. And he narrowed it down to practice. That is, he prepared his heart to do it. What a great example Ezra is. His life was righteous. And because it was, he had a lot of influence. He had a lot of influence with God, with the king, and with the people. And he taught it to Israel. He taught the word of God to Israel. He taught Israel the statutes and ordinances. And those are just other words for for his word. Statutes and ordinances, his law. Ezra taught them to the people of Israel. What an immoral falling away from the righteous Ezra were the scribes of the Lord's day. They had fallen so far away from the morals of righteous Ezra. We need to imitate Ezra's qualities today. Listen again to what it says at the end of verse 10. It says, for Ezra had prepared his heart. Notice, underline the words. He prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach it. To seek, to do, and to teach. That is the balanced life. 
That is the balanced life of a Christian. And the text points out here, that verse points out man's duty in relation to God's saving truth. And the law here refers without a doubt not to God's truth in general, but to that truth which he has humbled himself to reveal to man as a fallen being. And in relation to this, man has to do three things. He has to learn God's word. It says, Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord. Two things are to be focused on in our efforts to attain a knowledge of the truth that God has revealed to fallen man. The thing is, you guys, we have to look for it where it can be found. You know, a lot of people say, what is truth? Truth is relative. Therefore, they don't find truth. We have to look for truth where it can be found. Truth from God may be found. You know, people, oh, I see truth in nature. Well, that may be partially true. He's creator. You see God in nature. You see him in his creative design. And some people say, oh, I find truth in, in, in nature. It's written all over nature. Some say in the facts of human history. Some say truth is found in the makeup of the human soul. But the truth from God that man wants as a sinner can only be found in the Bible. It must be looked for in God's word. And that truth is written here on the pages of the word of God. Facts. It also must be looked for in in the way in which it's to be found. In other words, there's a right way of seeking God as well as a wrong way. Seeking the righteousness of God means to seek to live according to God's holy commands, that is his holy word, to live pure and holy lives. Seeking the kingdom of God involves seeking the rule of God. This means submitting to God's commands, submitting to God's word. The Lord's exhortation to seek first the kingdom of God in Matthew 6, is about spiritual matters. Spiritual matters are to have the priority in life. This means let the things of God and your own internal, eternal interests have the main place in your thoughts and desires, making the glory of God and your own spiritual blessing the most important thing to you. Make it your greatest concern. The meaning of the word seek. And we looked at this Sunday in Matthew six thirty three. Seek first the kingdom of God. The meaning of the word seek tells us that great effort is to be made in this seeking. It means to strive after. It requires a lot of effort and energy. It's not a casual thing to, to seek the scripture. It's an effort that should consume you. Seeking the word of God should be an all-consuming effort on your part and my part. Ezra, it says, have prepared his heart to seek it out. You must seek God's word with a devoted sincerity, a commitment. It must be thought of as as the, the highest good. Also, We are to seek out God's word with a persevering diligence. Don't give up. You need to search God's word like a like hidden treasure. Also, we have to practice it. 
Ezra not only prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord, but it says to do it. The truth that God has revealed to sinners isn't a subject for some hypothetical thought or, or, or some debate. It's a practical procedure. It's believing in your heart that Jesus died for your sins and then confessing in your heart that, yeah, I am a sinner. And then receiving Christ as my Lord and Savior, I will be born again. Then it says that, that Ezra prepared to do the will of God, the, 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 to do God's word as he learned it. The doing of God's word is basic it's a must for a thorough understanding of God's word. Jesus said in John 7, 17 through 18, he says, if anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. In other words, if we don't obey the things that God has told us, he's not going to show us anything new. When we obey God, guess what? He teaches us more. There are some things that a man may understand without practicing it. An example, a man, may under, a man might understand architecture, even though he's never built a house. He may understand farming, although he's, he's never grown crops. But one can understand theology. No one can understand theology unless he's practiced it. The doing of it is necessary in order to really benefit by it. Again, reading the word of God benefits you when you do it, when you apply it to your life. You can go to church all your life. You can have a Bible. You can own it. And you can, you know, you can know a little bit about it. But if you don't do it, it has no value. James chapter 1, 22 through 25. But do be doers of the word, James says. And not just hearers only because you're deceiving yourself. He who looks into the perfect law of liberty, which is the word of God, and continues, notice, continues in it, abides in it, stays there. And is, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. It's not in the knowing and the hearing. It's in the doing. And then he has to teach it. He's to seek it out. He's to do it. And then he's to teach it. And it says, and he, ta- and, and he taught the statutes and the ordinance in Israel. God's truth to sinners is to be preached by men. Preaching is to, is, to the, is to the sinner, to those that don't know, don't know God. God's, God's truth is to be taught to God's people. So preaching is to the unsaved. Teaching is to the saved. That's what we do here. We teach the word of God to the saved. But only the one who can preach and teach the word of God is the one who has learned it and practiced it. The right kind of preaching and teaching is life preaching and teaching. Your life must speak to you. The life preaching and teaching is the most understandable, the most unquestionable, the most sure, the most Christ-like. In closing, we must learn, practice, preach, and teach the Bible. But preaching and teaching the Bible can only be done by those who have learned it and practiced it. Jesus said he came to heal, to to preach, to teach, and to heal. 
Notice the divine sequence in service. Everything in its proper order. It's a universal law, and it applies to teaching the word of God. There must be diligent searching for the word of God. There must be a heartfelt doing of God's will once you've learned it. Woe to the man who tries to teach other people God's word who he himself doesn't obey it. And then to enforce commands, you know, to to tell people you have to obey this when he himself doesn't obey it. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 19, so if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's law and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Then we can teach the word of God. Pay attention to the order that was given here in Ezra's example because you'll see that it's taught in many parts of the Bible. But again, let Ezra's application of it make it clear to you here. Father, thank you so much for this really, really great chapter, Lord. We thank you for the lessons in it, God. And Father, I pray that we would not just know these lessons now, but that we'd apply them, Father. That, Lord, now that we have heard that we would do, that we would take it to heart, God. For again, instructions of any kind don't do us a bit of good if they're not followed through. But there's none more important than the instructions for life that the Bible gives us. It's a matter of life and death. It's a matter of hell or heaven. And God's word is not to be taken lightly. It's not to be taken as just another book or just a special book. It is special, but not in the meaning of just special. It's, it, it's, it's God's book. It's God's word to us. It's, it's his revelation of himself to man. If we want to know about God and who he is. We need to read the scriptures. Maybe you're here tonight and you've never received Christ as your Lord and Savior. For whatever reason, we pray that you will make a change tonight. The worship team's going to lead us in a song of worship. And if you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, then as we worship, You get up out of your seat. You make your way towards the steps up front. I'll meet you there. And when the song's over, we'll pray together a simple prayer of faith. Mm